0: page 1527 in your pew bible on your large print sheets as well page 1527 be reading the first 14 verses of Romans 8 8, we'll be reading the first 14 verses. This is God's Word. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, you are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, today we're going to be looking particularly at verses 3 and 4 of Romans 8, fulfilling the law, in which we see that Paul shows that the law teaches about Christ fulfilling the law. The law, and about the law's fulfillment in the believer. So it's mutual here. The law teaches about Christ fulfilling the law, and also the law is fulfilled in the believer. Now, I mentioned last time, as we're looking at these three uses of the law that the larger catechism talks about, that we could use the initials. DDT. A good pesticide, right? But it's it's a way of remembering what I'm talking about here. DDT. So think that the law, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, demonstrates that we are sinners. It holds up a mirror to us. We see ourselves reflected. We don't like what we see. It demonstrates that we're sinners. Number two, it drives us either further into our sin or to Christ. We're driven. We're driven. Choose you this day whom you will serve. As we saw last week from Psalm 95. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. It's a call to repent. It's a call to exercise faith. And so it drives us one way or the other. But then thirdly, it also teaches us how to live. It teaches us how to live. As we're going to see today, The way in which it does it is by means of looking at Jesus and by means of recognizing the fulfillment of the law in us. And that leads us then to teaching us, giving us the standard, teaching us the way by which we should live. The book of Romans is a good place to look with regard to the various uses of the law. Chapter 3 which we preached on a couple of weeks ago, demonstrates our sinfulness. Chapters 4 and 5 show that we are saved apart from the law and only by Christ. Chapters 6 and 7 are concerned with holiness and thus conformity with the law and a rejection of sin. And now we come to Romans chapter 8. The first thing we have here today then is Christ fulfilling of the law, Christ fulfilling of the law. And as Paul says here, it is uh, <clears throat> first of all, in verse three. First of all, it is the necessity that uh, for Christ to fulfill the law is because the law. It is because of the impotence, the lack of power of the law itself. Verse three, for what the law could not do. Now the word there is adunatas. Adunatos. You hear in there the word dynamite. <clears throat> so you know what dynamite is. You want to blow something up, you use dynamite because of the power. But you put that little that little letter awe in front of it and it means not. So instead of being powerful it means being not powerful, not like dynamite. And so adunatas it was impotent it was without power by itself. The law here I would suggest uh, refers to the law in general not just the ceremonial but as a principle, it refers to the law in general. But why, then, is it adunitas, without power? The reason is because it was weak through the flesh. It was weak through the flesh. And here, when it uses the word flesh, we're not talking about, well, we have flesh and blood. It's not so much that. Um, But rather, flesh here is a reference to sinful human nature. Sinful human nature. The law, then, could not do something because it was weak through the flesh. Why is it weak? Because the law has no redemptive quality in and of itself. In and of itself, it cannot save. Thus, it teaches us, almost, we can say, in a negative capacity. It points to Christ as the only way of salvation, driving the sinner to him. It points to Christ as the one who embodies the law and suffered its curse. We sang from Psalm 40 today where Jesus himself said, I delight, here I come. It's written of me. All the scripture is pointing to the coming of Christ and to his death, to his coming, to be our savior, to his coming, to be put to death on the cross, to suffer the wrath of God upon himself. That's the gospel. And so it points to Christ then as the one who embodies the law, who is the very law of God come in the flesh. He is the word of God, the logos, the divine logos come in the flesh. But also because of that, he suffered the curse of the law. The law teaches in types and shadows all of those ceremonial regulations, all of those, those sacrifices, all the things of the tabernacle and the temple, all of those elaborate ceremonies, again, pointing outside of themselves to another reality. Those laws had a, have a spiritual significance as being fulfilled by Christ. But in and of themselves, the law cannot save. But that's why we have the provision of Christ. Notice the provider here. The provider is said to be God. Verse 3, what the law could not do, adunatas, that it was weak through the flesh, God did. God did. He's the provider. He is the Father. It's the Father who is being portrayed here. It's the one who sent the Son, as being the one who initiates salvation, and He is the one who sent. He sent His Son for God's. Remember John three sixteen. God so loved the world He gave His only begotten Son. He gave. He sent. Jesus into the world. We we talk about mothers today and other days. We think of mothers. We think of fathers as well. Can you imagine a parent sacrificing his or her own child for someone else? But that's what God the Father did. He sent and so what we see here then are the love and the grace of the Father. He's the one who provided. And who is the one who was provided? Well, we are told here, his own son. His own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. You remember in the Gospel of John how Jesus is, is portrayed? portrayed. John 1, verse 14, and the word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. The only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, the one who has this special relationship, the eternally begotten Son of God, The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. What did he do? We just mentioned John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He sent Jesus into the world that we might have salvation. But did you notice something else here about God being the provider and sending his son? Did you see it? Notice what it says. In He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. In the likeness of sinful flesh. Now this term, likeness, does not imply any unreality of his human nature like docetism or some other heresy like that, that, oh, Jesus just seemed to be a human. No, 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 no. He really took on human flesh. But rather, by saying in the likeness of sinful flesh, what what is being emphasized here is that Christ, even though he takes on flesh, cannot be sinful. That's the point. So he takes on human flesh, and it's in the likeness of sinful flesh. It's real flesh, and it's, it sort of approximates it, if you will, it comes right up to it, yet without sin because Jesus cannot sin. This term, sinful flesh, this term expresses the great humiliation of the perfect Son of God in his relation to and identification with sinful humanity. That's the point. And so it is, he's in the likeness of sinful human. This is why, for example, we, uh, the writer to the Hebrews says, chapter 7, verses 25 and following, therefore he, Jesus, is also able to save to the uttermost. Sometimes you hear from the guttermost to the uttermost. Whoever you are, however low you are, he's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. And yet he takes on human flesh. And he comes into close contact, therefore, with sinful flesh, in the likeness of sinful flesh. That's how low Jesus came, yet without sin. What is the purpose then of this one who is provided so that he might deal with sin? Jesus came to deal with sin. That's why it says the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin or on account of sin. Thou shalt call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. You know, again, it's it's hard for us to understand this it's hard for us to, under, to fully to appreciate this because we don't really understand much about the holiness of god and how holy he is how he cannot look upon sin and therefore what a wonder what an amazing thing it is that jesus came to deal with us dirty wicked horrible awful people. But this is what Jesus did. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, for he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. That is to say, to have the, the penalty of sin, because our sin was attributed to him, so he took He took our sin upon himself. didn't become sinful, but he took our sin upon himself. He made him to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so Jesus then deals with sin. Jesus came into the closest possible relationship to sin without actually becoming tainted by it. And again, that's amazing, is it not? You look at the Old Testament. You look at all the the laws about about uncleanness. And you touch something that's unclean, you don't make that unclean thing holy. No, you become unclean, basically, right? But with Jesus, he touches the unclean and it becomes holy. Holy. And notice the effect then. He came in, he, that was his purpose, to deal with sin, and he, what is the effect? He condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh. Now this refers to declaring sin to be evil. Jesus' perfect life in the flesh was used by God to demonstrate how bad sin is. God the Father here is doing the condemning. And God the Father then holds up the life of Jesus as a measuring stick to show how far man falls short. But of course, we say, well, the law did that, right? The law did that. The law demonstrates how bad we are as sinners. But there's there's something more that's going on here. It's not just that. There's something else. Here we have a reference to the overthrow of sin and its power. He condemned sin in the flesh. He overthrew sin, as it were, the whole sin system. He did it in, Jesus did it in the flesh, in his own flesh. This condemning of sin in the flesh was done in the very nature which in all others, that is to say you and me, was sinful. But Jesus is not sinful. And in his flesh he condemned sin in the flesh. He is the one who fulfilled all righteousness. He is our righteousness. He kept the law of God perfectly perfectly not only as our example, but also as our Savior so that we can have salvation. He kept the law. I do not come to destroy the law, Jesus said. I come to fulfill it. <clears throat> In Romans 10, verse 9, we read, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And in Galatians 4 and verse 4, Paul writes, but when the fullness of, to- of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. He kept the law that we could not keep. He fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf. And at the same time, he suffered its curse as an offering for sin. And in all these ways, then, not simply holding it up as as the example. Yes, we look at Jesus and we're ashamed, to be sure. But that's true of the law as we compare ourselves to the law. Jesus did something further than that. He condemned sin in the flesh and broke the back of sin for our sakes. That's how Christ fulfills the law. But now, what does that mean for us? Well, we see the law's fulfillment in the believer. Notice uh, verse 4. In order that, the fact here, the fact of the law's fulfillment in the believer, in order that, the ordinance of <clears throat> the ordinance of the law might be fulfilled in us. So that term ordinance, you hear that term like statutes, ordinance, particular regulations. The righteous requirement of the law is what was being referred to. Whatever the law requires of us. That's the reference there. This statement, then that Paul is saying, is not contrary to what he had just taught in Romans regarding the law. The law condemns us, and we are not saved by means of the law, clearly. And if you are depending upon your own righteousness, your own goodness, your own faith, your own repentance, your tears of repentance, your sorrow, if you're depending upon that to stand before God, you will be lost forever. Forever. The law condemns us. We need someone to pay the price for what we would otherwise suffer. It is, salvation is totally a gift, totally of God, totally of grace. Paul's not contradicting himself. He, we dare not trust in our own works. It was, I believe it was Charles Spurgeon, if I'm not mistaken, a great Baptist preacher of more than 100 years ago from England, I believe it was he who said, if I add one stitch to the clothing of salvation, to the garment of salvation, one stitch, I will be lost forever. It's totally of grace, totally. But having said that, that does not mean that the law is not to be fulfilled in us that does not mean that having been saved apart from the law, it does not mean that we therefore can forget about the law in terms of our sanctification, our being set apart for God's service. Paul, of course, gives hints about the place of the law in the life of the believer. If you look at chapter 3 of, of Romans, do we then make void the law through faith? No, no, this is not some easy believism Paul is writing about. Not at all. Paul says, certainly not, or God forbid. On the contrary, we establish the law. Uh, chapter uh, 6, uh, verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? God forbid. How can it be? same as we come into chapter 7 of Romans verse 12 Therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good chapter 7 verse 14a for we know that the law is spiritual driven by the holy spirit characterized breathing of the holiness of God the holy spirit himself verse 16 if Then I do what I will not to do. I agree with the law that it is good. Verse 22. For I delight in the law of God, according to the inward man. Verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. But with the flesh, the law of sin, because he has that struggle within him, to be sure. But with, but I myself serve the law of God. And so this ordinance of the law, the righteous requirement of the law, Paul here says in Romans 8, in order that this might be fulfilled. Notice that this is a certainty. There is a purpose here. that it's what the, the, uh, In this verse, we have what's called a hina clause. That's kind of a funny word, hina, H-I-N-A, it's, that's the Greek word, that's the conjunction, hina, which means purpose, in order that, for the purpose of whatever it may happen to be. And that's what Paul is saying here. In order that, it might be fulfilled. So what is meant by fulfilled? What is Paul talking about here? Well, let me suggest that the sanctification that is being seen here is nothing short of the perfection of God's law. Not that we're going to be perfect, to be sure. We're not talking about perfection in this life. But nevertheless, that desire for the law and increasingly our conformity to the law, progressive sanctification, that is to be true of us. We love, of course, to read Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works as anyone should boast. But Paul goes on to say, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The good works in conformity with the law, with the ordinance of the law, the righteous requirements of the law, for the law teaches us how we ought to live. Oh how I love thy law, the psalmist says. It is my study all the day. And you know, it's not that we are that this is to be that this is to be true of us. By the way, I can refer to other verses. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk according to the counsel of the ungodly, stands in the way of sinners sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. But my friends, it's also perfectly reasonable and wise to follow this, is it not? This is what we find, for example, in Psalm 19. In Psalm 19, verses 7 and following, you've probably memorized these, many of you. Psalm 19, starting in verse seven, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. You want wisdom? You want to be wise? I've certainly been foolish at times in my life. I imagine we've all have been occasionally. At least. How do you how do you get wisdom? You follow. Verse 8, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. You no longer have a, a guilty conscience. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Isn't it good to, to walk knowing where you're going? The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. It, it will last you forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. It's more precious than gold and sweeter than honey. Don't you love honey? I love honey. But you know, the psalmist says there's something sweeter than that. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them, there is great reward. So it's reasonable. It's logical. It's wise to follow the word. Don't be conformed to this world. Paul writes in Romans 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, Paul here is saying there is a purpose to the law. Indeed, what we see here is God's purpose in giving the law. His purpose in giving his law was so that man could conform their lives to God's image. And this verse then means that his purpose in giving the law will be accomplished in us. It will be if we are converted, if we're born again. It will be. That's what's being said here. In order that the law might be fulfilled in us. In us. Not by us. In us. For even the sanctification requires the work of God in our lives. So that's the fact then that we have, guarantee of it. But notice the motivation and the power. Who walk not according to the flesh. Here flesh refers to sinful, sin permeated, sin soaked humanity. I'm sure you've all either experienced or maybe Certainly, know of sometimes when a, a rag gets permeated with grease. Maybe someone's working on a car and it just gets all, or a piece of machinery, and it just gets all permeated with that. Again, that's sort of a picture, is it not? The flesh, that's what Paul is referring to, the corruption of it. He's referring to those sinful desires, but he's also referring to human endeavors. So the flesh not only is corrupt, but it's also weak. And the motivation, then, and the power cannot be worked up. It cannot be worked up. This concept, thus, guards against legalism and the idea that we can do anything pleasing to God in our own strength. Our walk, our, that is to say our conduct, our lifestyle, our lives... What we think, what we see, what we handle, where we go, all of these things, if it's in conformity to the image of God, must come from God himself because, notice what Paul says here, we do not walk according to the flesh in its corruption and its weakness, but according to the flesh to the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who is at work, and this is what we find all throughout here in our text for today, in, in the, what we read, these first 14 verses of, of uh, Romans 8. Please notice that, that. Paul, when he's talking about this, my friends, is not talking about some sort of emotional high or experience. That's not the point. No, walking spiritually doesn't mean having some ishigishi feeling. Walking spiritually means living according to the law with desire to please him. Oh, how love I lay law. It is my study all the day. So in summary, then, we see that the law teaches about Christ's fulfillment of it, both with regard to the types and shadows of the ceremonial law, and also the weakness of the law itself, which points outside of itself to Christ. And so let me ask, by way of application today, are you seeking to have the law fulfilled in you? Are you seeking to have the law fulfilled in you? Are you seeking to have the law fulfilled in you? And then secondly, are you doing so? This comes back to the glory of God and the grace of God. Are you doing so? Because of gratitude to the triune God. The Father who sent the Son and condemned sin in the flesh. The Son who came on account of sin and suffered the curse of the law. Spirit who enables us to carry out the law. May God give us his grace as we not only seek to have the law fulfilled in us, but as we learn more and more, as we are taught what it means to keep God's law. Amen. we please stand for prayer? And Father, we thank thee For the Lord Jesus that he is the one who came in human flesh in the likeness of sinful flesh and condemned sin in the flesh. And Father, we pray that that gospel message would resonate with us and would motivate us. Oh God, we pray that we would be sincere, that we would be repentant Give us thy grace this day. Teach us thy statutes. Write them upon our hearts that we might not sin against thee. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.